This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. In the fall winter 2020, the IBM Center for the Business of Government initiated a challenge grant competition, soliciting essays from academics and practitioners describing how government can best transform the way it works, operates, and delivers services to the public, given the impact of this pandemic. How are local governments using remote and hybrid working arrangements? How will local government operations and management change in the post-pandemic environment? And what key questions do government executives need to ask to meet the demands of a post-pandemic time? I will explore these questions and so much more with Sherry Greenberg, contributor to the IBM Center Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. Sherry, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, Sherry, during the COVID-19 pandemic, local government workplace issues surfaced that present many serious questions for how local governments will work and operate. Uh, Your piece uh, for the IBM Center, The Future of Work in Local Governments Beyond COVID-19, kind of raises those questions. I'd I'd like for you to, to tell us what areas specifically these questions encompass. Absolutely. I think of this in two ways, both how the future of work has been affected by COVID-19 and local government, internal inside to local government. What does this mean How uh, regarding how local government itself functions? And then external, what does this mean both to uh, residents and what does this mean to those outside of local government that interface with local government? So if we look at inside of local government, those internal issues, we would ask questions such as, I call them the W's, right? The old who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? We need to apply this to local government in a systems-wide approach regarding the future of work and what we have learned beyond and past COVID-19. What services do we need to deliver and how do we need to deliver them? Um, How will we hire people? How will we train people? How will we evaluate people? What will our offices look like inside of local government? How much space will we need? How will it be configured? Will we have hybrid work environments? What will this mean for people who continue to work out in the field? So those are some of the internal issues, as I call them, that we would see that are internal to the uh, management workings and governments of uh, local government. And when I say local government, I mean everything from 
a city, to a county, to a school district, to a water district, a, a hospital district. There are all kinds of local governments when we think about that. And when I talk about those external issues, there are just so many um, external issues to local government when we talk about the future of work. And these can include uh, rethinking and redesigning urban spaces. What does the public square look like? What does this mean for zoning, for parks, for transportation, parking? Will we not need as much parking? Will people be uh, working uh, remotely, some hybrid? Uh, what will the patterns be as far as commuting? Social distancing, will that continue? And what will this mean for our public spaces? Those are just a few of the issues uh, that I see both internal to the workings and governance of local governments and then those that are external. So Sherry, what will remote and hybrid working arrangements mean for planning within the local government workplace and planning within cities themselves? This is one of the huge questions today uh, that we are trying to grapple with because we are just now um, emerging in, in some places or beginning to emerge, I should say, from COVID-19 and from the, the, the total um, lockdown that some people have had. Now, let's not forget that there are people who have continued to work outside of their homes, either by choice or out of necessity. Uh, they are in um, working in environments where they must work outside the home, whether they are stocking grocery shelves, so important to us and to having food, whether they're, um, as we saw here in Texas with the power outages, working on those electric lines, whether they are providing um, health care. So there are people who have continued to work either uh, by choice or by necessity outside the home. But there are many other people who have been working from um, a home environment or at least partially hybrid, as we say. And as we see uh, cities opening up, both opening up to having workers come back in and then within the city, the environment beginning to open up some with uh, more vaccinations, we are beginning to grapple with this issue of where will people work and what will this space look like? I don't think that we're actually going back completely to how things were before COVID-19. I think that what we will see is uh, some people will, who were not working um, outside of the home will go back to uh, working completely outside of the home, given the nature of their occupations or uh, what their employers are requiring. I think we, that there could be some people who will continue to work 100% remotely or virtually. Um, they may not even be living in the same city anymore as their employer. They may have moved. And then I think that there are many people who may be entering this kind of hybrid work environment. Um, there are some employers who have found that it will be more economical. They don't need the expensive, as much expensive uh, space right? And what will that mean for space planning? What will that mean for our commercial spaces and our downtowns and our other um, centers of, of commerce? And um, there will be people and uh, places that, have, that decide, you know, maybe we need people in two days a week and maybe we'll have them in in shifts or maybe there'll be a couple of days a week where everyone is here, but we will continue with some type of hybrid environment, uh, both for space planning, but also for the benefit of our employees 
who may have um, decided that some of the virtual work environment is helpful to them. There are some employers in some situations where they've actually seen productivity increase, right, with uh, the virtual environment. They're not having commuting. They're not, um, they, they may be caring for people and it's more efficient. On the other hand, there are others who uh, need to get out of that homework environment. It's not as efficient for them. They don't have the offices. They do have disruptions at home. And then others where they want to continue with this hybrid type of environment. Sherry, will local governments need less office space given the fact that many people will continue to work from home either entirely or partially? There There are lots of discussions regarding this right now, both would the local governments themselves not need as much space? And where is their space? Sometimes, depending on the city that you're looking at, the city government, it is a, a massive amount of space in one location. In others, it's spread out. And the same with those office buildings, whether they're a downtown or in other commercial centers. Some of the discussions are focusing around, for instance, affordable housing. Do we have a space um, in some of these commercial centers that it's space the cities themselves are using, you know, big office towers or that um, businesses are using and that we have excess commercial space that could be used for affordable housing. We know that we have a dearth of affordable housing throughout this country in cities, um, not just uh, large, but even smaller too. And um, we have seen this exacerbated actually during the COVID-19 pandemic um, with um, people wanting uh, more housing, uh, larger housing with people shifting and moving um, perhaps from um, cities out to spaces that they have uh, larger space out in suburban or exurban or even moving uh, cities. But with this, we have not seen more affordable housing. In fact, we have seen, continue to see this imbalance with um, demand and supply with having more demand for housing and in some places even higher prices with uh, not with with not having more supply or even a diminished supply and of course we have also seen people who have been in quite dire circumstances as far as um being able to uh, to earn a living to support themselves and families if they have families during this pandemic and um we could be seeing more people experiencing homelessness. We have more, uh, as we know, more relief dollars with the rescue package coming into the economy and to help people. But uh, we still um, have a situation where many people have had dire circumstances and not all of them are obvious. If people are couch surfing and living with friends or living in their cars, it's not as obvious. In this context, Sherry, what jobs will permanently shift in how work gets done? What jobs will be obsolete? And perhaps what new jobs will arise? This, this is a big question. People are asking what jobs will there, will there be? And uh, some jobs will go away, but there will be new jobs. You know, where will we work? How will we work? What are the social and political implications of this? Um, there will be jobs that will be lost. Let's talk about drivers. The number of jobs in our economy, think about it, that involve drivers, different types of driving, 
whether these are uh, drivers um, as far as food delivery. We have seen so much of that um, during COVID-19. We have seen people who are driving for other people, the amount of um, driving that has, you know, that is outside any of the formal economy, people just helping each other. But within the formal economy, we, you know, whether it's a DoorDash or other services or Amazon where people are driving, the long haul drivers, the truck drivers, lots of driving. And with um, the advent of more artificial intelligence, if we are seeing um, autonomous vehicles, uh, then we will be losing those driving occupations. Um, we are seeing um, and have seen for some time in call centers. Uh, you may not be speaking with a human on the other side. It may be a robot, right? Even in fields such as law and medicine, where we see in the, uh, in the operating field, where you see uh, robots, or with law, where you see that there are certain um, types of law where we see artificial intelligence being used. However, on the other side, we still will need doctors, right? They may be doing different types of things. They may be uh, in the operating field controlling the robots, right? We still need lawyers, but there are some parts of the uh, legal occupation that they will not be doing shifting to others. With uh, driving, we will need all kinds of technicians. We will need data scientists. We will need probably more sociologists and psychologists with the social implications. And in some occupations, we will need to make sure that we are upskilling our workers, that they are now trained to work alongside artificial intelligence and robots and have that upskilling. Uh, so that will be important too, that workforce training and upskilling and the continuous learning. But there will be some occupations where I think that we can have, whether it's robots or smart tools assisting uh, workers that can actually provide them a higher level of um, enjoyment in their occupation and also reduce the physical stress and wear and tear and injuries to them. So if you think about um, home health care or home um, workers who are helping, let's say, elderly people. If they are working side by side robots who can then help them with the very stressful parts of their occupation, I'm talking about physically stressful, the lifting of people. Think about the decrease in injuries, um, back injuries and other injuries that we could see. If we Think about um, certain manufacturing and those repetitive stress injuries, the carpal tunnel, for instance. If we can have robots working side by side and upskilling those workers, uh, then we could reduce those injuries or even smart tools in factories where those tools are learning and helping the workers and uh, decreasing those types of repetitive stress injuries. So, Sherry, how has the pandemic accelerated changes that were already underway in many local governments? The, the pandemic clearly has accelerated changes. In, and some of those were already underway in local government or local governments were thinking about them. And uh, this has been pervasive across local governments, whether they are cities or counties or school districts or healthcare districts. Uh, one of the big ones and I, I really feel that this is important. And I know that um, we have members of Congress who are trying to address this as well as members of 
state legislatures, including here in Texas, and that is universal broadband. This is something that for maybe some people was on the back burner for others had been on the front burner for a while, but became very obvious, okay, to local governments. And that is all of a sudden we're needing to shift in local government and provide services that maybe were partially online or a little bit virtual to, you know, going from almost zero to 70% or 100%, right? Uh, Telemedicine would be one, but it's not just telemedicine or telehealth, all kinds of appointments, all kinds of interactions that are now virtual. Well, for that to work, you have to have broadband, you have to have high-speed internet. And we saw cities pitching in with school districts, for instance, to figure out and with our um, transport, our public transportation providers, how can we get buses with, uh, you know, broadband, with Wi-Fi hotspots so students can do their homework or so that uh, people can get on and make appointments for their COVID-19 vaccination appointments. And we saw in some areas such as telehealth and telemedicine where you had had a very low uptake in those type of appointments go from maybe you know 10% to 70% overnight with a very high satisfaction rate uh, because for many people getting to these appointments was extremely difficult, particularly if they are in underserved and under-resourced areas. They may not have had transportation or childcare or they may be in occupations where it's not easy to get to those appointments. How has the pandemic disrupted and displaced many long-accepted practices in local government management and operations? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. My guest today is Sherry Greenberg. Sherry, how has the pandemic disrupted and displaced many long accepted practices in local government management operations? There have been many changes in local government operations. First and foremost, let's start with meetings. In local government, and this, of course, has um, is supported in statute um, with open meetings uh, from the standpoint of accountability and transparency. You want to have meetings that are open and accessible to people. And traditionally, that had meant that all of these meetings were 
in many places, 100% in person, uh, whether it was a city council meeting or county commissioners, your school district, your healthcare district, your transportation board, those were 100% uh, in person. And you quickly saw a pivot because of COVID-19 and the transmission to 100% virtual meetings, right? Where people were... Uh, using Zoom or whatever platform for public participation, for all of the meetings, for all of the hearings. And there are questions now, um, you know, once uh, restrictions are lifted, um, I think you will see these meetings going back to in-person, but the question is, we will, will there still be an option for people to participate virtually? Because we talk about the frequent flyers, the people who always came to your city council meeting, let's say, um, because they wanted to, because they had the time to, because they liked being there in person. But there were other folks who could not do that. So will we still have these uh, virtual participation options? You know, I hope that we will. Um, I call it uh, make new friends, but keep the old. We'll go back to our in-person meetings, but still have these options for people who are not comfortable or cannot participate in person, but want to participate. What are some of the significant advantages, Sherry, to working from home? And, and perhaps you can outline some of, the, some of the obstacles to working from home. I think that uh, for some people, one of the most significant advantages from working from home has been not having to commute, right? So people who were facing long commutes, spending you know, an hour or more um, commuting, this is um, actually a psychological burden. There have been studies uh, regarding that. This certainly you have to have a, a vehicle and not just any vehicle, but a, you know, a vehicle that's in good repair, paying for the gas, um, the, the, the loss of time, as I mentioned. So I think for many, not having to commute has been a big advantage um, as far as working for home. For some people who had very small children, it provided um, flexibility in the work schedule and perhaps not having uh, to pay for childcare, which can be costly. On the flip side of that, I think for many people, um, there were disadvantages, um, for, for instance, not having the space, not having space to have an office at home and trying to work while you do have for instance, children at home who need uh, schooling, they may be, uh, you know, schooling virtually. Uh, so I think that, that that you saw as a big disadvantage also for many people. So, Sherry, we talked about the change in how government employees work, but I want to talk about the shift in how public services are being delivered. Perhaps you can elaborate on some of those changes. We have seen changes in service delivery, as I uh, spoke of, for instance, with telehealth and telemedicine. But we've seen other changes, too, that I think really did need to accelerate. Uh, there's been talk for years about um, cities and other local governments and even state governments providing better service online, having service that actually worked as far as being able to get online and seamlessly uh, do everything from your driver's license renewal to uh, permitting. And that is something else that we saw um, rapidly increase and improve was having the availability to services online that actually work, right? With also being able to uh, call in to call centers and get help. Uh, and all of these are features that uh, people actually have been demanding 
from local governments for a long time because I've been able to see them and use them from industry, right? Well, if I can, if I can buy something this way and do it online seamlessly or, um, you know, get a health appointment and talk to somebody, why can't I do this with my local government? And so that is something else that we have seen. Now, it also, again, underscores the need for universal broadband. I, I personally think that broadband should be a utility, just like electric service, water service, wastewater service. You know, in 1936, um, Congress, the United States Congress passed the Rural Electrification Act. And I think that we need something similar to that for broadband now, because for this to succeed, everybody has to have that high-speed internet. So likewise, COVID-19 accelerated the adoption and implementation of new technologies in local governments beyond broadband. Would you elaborate on some of these new technologies and more importantly, the implication of their adoption and use? There are there are clearly other um, technologies. Um, they are all underpinned by really having um, this high-speed internet and not just having it accessible, being able to afford it. So of course, what we're doing now right? Um, we are recording this audio via Zoom. The presence of more and more uh, platforms for uh, virtual uh, recordings and webinars, whether it's uh, Zoom, uh, you, you know, Cisco, WebEx, I mean, there's dozens now. I'm getting new ones every day, it seems like, to hop on, right? There are also uh, new apps that we are seeing as far as providing services and really getting away from app-driven service provision, um, but just going fully to virtual service provision instead of having to go to an app. So that is something else that we are seeing, Um, you know, designing everything as digital first without the app intervention. That's a very interesting perspective, Sherry. Would you elaborate on the internal issues affecting local and city government workers and the work they're doing in the aftermath of the pandemic and its response? Yes. You know, for for much of the workforce in cities, uh, in fact, most of it, they were not working virtually. They were not working from home. They were either working in offices or out in the field. Right. There were so many who were out in the field uh, doing inspections, uh, permitting um, and others who, if they were not out in the field, they were working from offices. And uh, for many of them, that was a, a quick shift as cities are opening back up and some cities such as New York City telling their, their employees to come back to the office. Um, you know, we we will see, I think, in a period of adjustment and whether or not they become 100% back in the office or some type of hybrid. And I think it's important to think about uh, the differences. What will this mean uh, if you have some employees who are in the office all of the time or part of the time, others who are not there, what will this mean for how you conduct your meetings? What will this mean for employees' ability to have access to their managers and supervisors and kind of be in the loop? What how will you evaluate employees? These are very important questions. Sherry, how will people who work remotely form those bonds and shared experiences to successfully collaborate? Yes, absolutely. And when I when I spoke of the need perhaps for more people in uh, fields such as psychology and sociology, it's not just because of artificial intelligence, but this, this uh, recognition of the need for connection. And certainly, uh, this has been very difficult uh, for people. Um, the 
you know, rapid shutdown of COVID-19. For some people who um, thrive more in um, a solitary, they may be introverts, they may have uh, situations that um, allow them to actually perform better in a more solitary environment. Frankly, it will be more difficult going back to the office. But for many, many other people, um, this working in a virtual environment in a more solitary has been very difficult. you know, from a psychological aspect and from a sociological aspect and then from a workforce aspect. Because when we talk about forming bonds, you know, this is about relationships. So much of what we do in work is is formed around relationships, relationships with your coworkers. We used to talk about the water cooler, right? Just because those the, the happenstance, you happen to see somebody in the hall at the water cooler, you see somebody's doors open, you stop by, you happen to run into your boss or your manager in the hall, or, or they're walking around to just you know meet and greet people. If we do not have that, how do we form those bonds? How do we have those relationships? And if some people are in the office and others are not, are those people who are not at the office, are they at a disadvantage in forming those relationships and those bonds that will help them have a better understanding of the people they work with and do their work? And also, when it comes time to evaluate their performance and time for promotions. So, Sherry, to what extent do the processes and, and policies of human resource issues, such as hiring, training, supervising, need to be reimagined in a post-COVID world? All of these uh, have been, whether people wanted to or not, or ready or not, been recast over the past year, right? The workflow, um, cybersecurity. You know, making sure that people have devices. You maybe you have to you may have to pay for the devices and make sure their devices are owned by the city or the local government, and that they have the proper security on them and all of the cybersecurity issues. This has been huge. That they have all of the software. So that's just from a technical or technological. That they have the broadband that they need that's reliable. All of that is from the technological aspect, and this has been big in all across local government, whether it's delivering uh, laptops to city employees who are now at home or iPads to students. But when you get beyond that, all of the systems you need to have in place, the hiring systems, interviewing via Cisco WebEx or Teams or Zoom or whatever, um, doing evaluations. Uh, not in person, but uh, virtual evaluations um, for employees. And um, again, those hiring. And I think with hiring, uh, something to consider that we've been seeing more and more over the past few years is using algorithms, using artificial intelligence. And we really have to um, ensure that we're doing that, that we don't have bias embedded in those algorithms that we're using for hiring of our city employees. What local government workplace issues have surfaced in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security, 
in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. My guest today is Sherry Greenberg. So Sherry, we've talked previously about uh, local government employees working remotely or having alternative uh, working arrangements. I was wondering when they do come back to the office, a, a lot of uh, office spaces, open concept and bullpen. Do you see or hear of any changes to that? Yes, and it's really in flux. Uh, there are, uh, you have seen um, a lot of offices um, within local governments and external in, you know, um, industry and commercial office buildings that went years ago to the open floor plan, the bullpen. There are concerns about that, of course, with uh, transmission. You know, should should you um, skinny that down? Should you have pe- workers there more in shifts, right, so that you can spread them out more so that they're socially distanced within those open areas? Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion about that. Will everybody be back in the office at the same time or will some people be there at different times or in different days so that they're more dispersed? There's also been uh, discussions about um, will you have some more hybrid environment where when people um, – need their own space, they'll be working from home, but then they'll come in for office for uh, meetings, which will be distanced or vice versa. So I would say in flux because we're we're just beginning in many areas to see people starting to go back and uh, starting to um, grapple with how do we best configure or reconfigure these spaces to be productive and um, also to be uh, safe. There's a lot of unknowns about, um, you know, COVID-19. We, the vaccines are wonderful and their efficacy has been proven. Um, But, you know, looking out to the future, for instance, will we need boosters and will there be uh, times of the year where um, we need more distancing in our offices? Sherry, the future of local government work requires rethinking and expanding to include new modes of public engagement and service delivery. Uh, Perhaps you can outline those new modes of engagement and delivery for us. Yes, and I I spoke of this a little bit when I talked about the uh, city council meetings, but the new modes of engagement um, really refer to using, being creative and using all the tools we have in the toolbox. And I think uh, before COVID, um, a lot of local governments only used in-person meetings, right? So if you couldn't come in person, you couldn't engage, whether it was a city council meeting, a town hall meeting, a public hearing at the school board, a focus group, a charrette where you're helping to co-create, right? And what we saw with uh 
the, the COVID-19 pandemic was a lot more creativity. People don't absolutely have to be here in person. We can do uh, semi-structured interviews, right? We can do smaller focus groups using a virtual platform, even charrettes, even co-creating with the whiteboards that we have now. I've been in, involved in many of those. And I also think that it's brought up a lot of the disparities we have seen in the public engagement and outreach um, that from, from local government and enabled us um, to reach more people. And sometimes by going back to what we considered very old fashioned forms of outreach during this pandemic with people who were safe with PPE and distance going door to door, right? To talk to people, to, to locate people um, using surveys, um, using uh, texting uh, for people who don't use email but do have phones and use texting, we saw a big uptick in a lot of new texting services to reach out to people. And I think that we we need to continue to be creative and to use the full complement that we have at our disposal. As I say, by land, by air, by sea. We will still be using um, in-person um, for many of our applications, but we can either augment that or in some places um, substitute uh, many of these others, whether it is um, using a, a texting service or whether it is a virtual town hall meeting or a Zoom focus group while still maintaining these in person. And I think we realize that in person, as I said, isn't just a town hall meeting, but really going back to some of those in person, you know, um, where we communicate directly with people, where we have the pop up meetings or the meetings in a park where we do go door to door to reach people. Sherry, what are some of the key external issues affecting residents and communities? So there are a lot of ways in which um, local governments do interface uh, externally. And um, I mentioned some of these at the beginning, but your local governments, your cities, for instance, this is in most cities, uh, you have zoning. Houston, Texas does not, but that's an outlier. Most cities, you do have zoning. And so much of how we use our space and interact is determined by zoning. There were already, before COVID-19, a lot of discussions in, in many cities about zoning. Should you have higher density? Should you change zoning? Should you have uh, more duplexes even in suburbs, for instance? And so I think that this is a major way, of course, in which um, the local government, and particularly at the city level, um, affects us externally is with uh, zoning and how we use our space and what this means. Um, are we going to have big box stores still? If so, where will they be located? What will our density be? What will this mean for transportation? Will we have more of a uh, balance where people are actually living closer to where they work and where they get health care, where they get education? Uh, these are big, important questions for us. And the, the way that we use space and the zoning and permitting and rules and regulations that cities have determine uh, so much of this, as do our regulations around, for instance, parking. Will we need as much? 
parking as we had before? Will will fewer people be commuting? We have uh, not as much of a need for parking. Could we convert some of those spaces to affordable housing or to open space for uh, parks? And we will also see um, that there are really um, implications um, for how we interact and uh, will there be changes in health and safety rules and regulations. A lot of that is at the local level with your inspections. Um, will inspections, will more of those be able to use technology in virtual or will they still mostly be in person? Uh, will we see increases? We've been seeing uh, drones and robots being used by local governments. Will we see increases in the use of robots and also uh, drones? And with that, we need to look to what types of policies will cities um, have and how will they implement them for the use of technology in general, but also for artificial intelligence, right? When I mentioned uh, the bias that we can see in the use of artificial intelligence, we've seen some of this with uh, facial recognition technologies, but also when we talk about technologies such as drones, we have privacy implications uh, there that we have to be cognizant of. So I see the need for defining and and then implementing rules and policies within local government in a wide range of areas that will affect us from healthcare to drones to artificial intelligence. More on COVID-19 and its impact on local government management and operations when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. How has the pandemic impacted the way local governments operate and deliver public services? What are local governments doing differently in the aftermath of the pandemic? And how can local governments work with stakeholders to bring back local economies? I will explore these questions and much more with Tad McGilliard and Laura Kaderis from the International City-County Management Association, ICMA, and contributors to the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. Tad, Laura, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Likewise. I want to explore your essay, your contribution, Transforming Local Government Service Delivery in the Wake of COVID-19. So historically, how has local government management been impacted and transformed by pandemics before? You know, the one example we cite in our paper refers back to Philadelphia and the outbreak of yellow fever, which at the end of the day resulted in a whole bunch of public health policies and programs, one of which was a board of health, which was established, inspection stations for ships uh, arriving at the city's wharfs and docks and, and bringing commerce to the city were inspected. And some of the early works in public water treatment were begun in the aftermath of the, of the yellow fever campaign. You know, one of the interesting things I think about a lot of the infrastructure and the capacity that we have in this country today 
uh, and elsewhere around the world as well, is the focus on health, safety, and hygiene. So a lot of the, the stuff that we do now to protect drinking water, provide indoor air quality, keep stormwater and sewage flows from, from coming together, all of that has a background and, a, and a ties back to a memory of public health and previous attempts at um, you know, preventing the outbreak of disease. Thanks, Tad. That was great history. Um, you know, innovation and transformation, as you point out in your essay, are often born out of necessity. How has the challenge of the current pandemic produced creative change in local government administration and operations? Well, this is Laura. I'll chime in here. And I think that the exponential growth of the public health threat and the rapid onset of the lockdown just really forced governments to adapt at a much quicker pace than normal and to also live with a certain degree of ambiguity. So they really had to be okay moving indefinitely into spaces where they might not have been completely comfortable or felt like they had anticipated all of the hiccups. One early example were public meetings. There was an obligation to keep government business running. And so you had communities turning to whatever off-the-shelf software or platforms were easiest to deploy, whether that was Facebook or Zoom or Microsoft Teams, so that they could hold these meetings virtually and without disruption. Um, you also had communities that at least initially couldn't get around the face-to-face -face requirements. So they turned to meeting in unexpected outdoor places like parking garages um, or sort of quasi-outdoor places. And then another thing that we heard a lot about was figuring out ways to really quickly repurpose assets and staff when their old function no longer make, made sense. So that could mean using infrastructure for childcare facilities or to facilitate broadband access, or even the opening up of the public right-of-way to allow dining or greater pedestrian use as we saw in a lot of communities across the country. Tad and Laura, you point out in your essay that you know, mega disasters of the early 21st century, 9-11, uh, Hurricane Katrina, illustrated the need for higher levels of local government preparedness and planning for when and not if a disaster strikes. I was wondering, could you elaborate what has changed most in local governments around disaster management and recovery? Well, what has changed for most governments around disaster management and recovery? I think for starters, um, in the aftermath of 9-11, um, money started flowing from the federal government to states and localities, and it continues to, to do so today through um, grants from the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So there's a lot of money which has flowed downward from the feds to, to cities and counties and, and states and, uh, and other local entities. And one of the things that we were really pleased to see, and we, we did a survey in, in 2019, right before the pandemic, obviously without any foreknowledge that a, a pandemic was coming, um, or we would have done a few different things with the survey. But we were very pleased to see in this survey on disaster recovery that, you know, nine in 10, nine out of 10, I should say, local governments uh, either had developed or were developing hazard mitigation plans, disaster recovery strategies, and continuity of, of operation plans. Almost all of them had some level of mutual aid agreement in place with their surrounding jurisdictions. So what we saw in the survey was a, a very high level of preparedness for the kinds of events that we would think of as more typical disasters. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. 
How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. My guest today is Sherry Greenberg. Sherry, the policy challenges regarding the future of work after the pandemic, both in local government workforces and the community at large, are numerous and wide-ranging. Perhaps you can outline those policy challenges and the social and political implication of those challenges. Yes. So there are many policy implications. A couple that I've mentioned um, are workforce training. What kinds of of policy implications do we have for workforce training? How will our local governments work with our school districts, with our community colleges, with our four-year colleges to make sure, and with industry, to make sure that we have the workforce training and the continuous learning and the -the on-the-job training that we need for our employees. And so I think that this is a very big area and a mindset that we have to have that will require retraining and continuous um, education um, with a mindset and expectation that we're continuously going to be adapting to change. And we know that change can be very difficult for all of us, for people. And that, I think, is an important aspect when we look at the policy implications regarding the future of work and uh, the the wide-ranging implications. There are many other policy changes, too, with purchasing and procurement. Um, How will this be affected with artificial intelligence? And again, what types of policies do we need to consider additional policies of purchasing and procurement if what we're purchasing and and, uh, is an artificial intelligence application or a drone or a robot? Uh, We need to pay more attention to cybersecurity and those policies uh, with purchasing and procurement. What will this mean for our criminal justice policies? I mentioned Uh, the um, drones, and also, of course, uh, the facial recognition. And uh, what will this mean more generally and broadly for equity? How do we address the systemic uh, racism, the disparities and inequities and injustices that we have really um, seen come to the forefront with the COVID-19 pandemic? Childcare. Childcare has been a tremendous um, issue for so much of our population for so many years. When we talk about uh, people being able to work and work to their highest and best ability and take care of their families. So I think that childcare is a a big policy issue that local governments will need to continue to address with the state and federal government with their, and also with their employers and also with their community colleges and their four-year institutions. So that is another uh, big one in addition to um, some of the other ones that I've mentioned. Cybersecurity, I mentioned in general, but let's not forget the ransomware attacks that we have seen and continue to see with local governments. That could can completely shut down a local government, as we saw with the city of Atlanta a few years ago. And then um, the human resource 
changes, as we uh, mentioned. There will need to be policy changes around um, human resources. And if we are using artificial intelligence or if we are using anything that um, has um, algorithms for hiring, how do we make sure that that is equitable when we use it? Uh, the privacy implications I mentioned with drones, but this is pervasive across uh, technologies. And um, the transparency is a big issue. How do we continue to ensure that we are transparent with our policies and uh, with our public engagement and uh, with our technology? Sherry, are there any other recommendations you would like to share with us? I do have recommendations. And my first and foremost is for local governments to not wait. These are all, you know, challenges, as we say in local government, and we, we cannot wait. We cannot wait on any of these. We uh, must be addressing them now. Cybersecurity, we have known, has been a major issue for years. It, you know, local governments must ensure that they have um, the cybersecurity in place to the best of their abilities, that they have staff or that they have consultants who they are working with to uh, continuously be monitoring this. Um, it can cause big issues as far as privacy and security of your residents' data, but also um, a complete shutdown, whether you're a healthcare district or a city. So these issues, and as I mentioned, these are issues with hybrid work or working from home, making sure that the technology that your employees have is safe and secure and that you are also uh, providing what they need with that. But there is a privacy implication there too, ensuring that the employees have what they need as far as cybersecurity, but not frankly uh, intervening in their lives in ways that you are viewing what they are doing and um, impinging upon the privacy of these employees. So we cannot wait for any of that. Also, the workforce training, you know, we've been engaged local governments for many years and with employers and community colleges and others in workforce training, but we really have to reevaluate this now with an eye towards uh, the hybrid work and uh, the new tools that we will see um, in workers using and the rapidly changing and con continuously changing landscape. So I think that those are very important. And uh, then ensuring uh, that um, people have access, your residents, to the um, tools that they need, whether it's transportation or the broadband or um, other tools that they need uh, to interact with society in general and with the local government. Uh, we, we, cannot, we cannot wait on these. So Sherry, local governments can't do this alone. How important are partnerships and collaboration to this effort? Local governments don't have to go this alone. And I think that this is a big opportunity to see our local governments working together across metropolitan areas with our cities, our counties, our suburbs, even our exurban areas and our rural areas working together to form uh, commissions with uh, stakeholders and with the community and with folks from the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit, and the academic sectors all working together. And we have been seeing this more and more with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, with these emergency operation centers that are bringing together people uh, from different um, industries, um, bringing together the different local governments with their hospitals. Uh, the Port of Los Angeles has a, a Blue Ribbon Commission on the Future of Work. And I think that we need to uh, 
continue if we're doing this or if not, start convening these um, committees or commissions or task forces that work across um, areas uh, to really tackle these future of work uh, challenges and these workforce training and education issues. Um, examples include from the state of Washington, the uh, state of Washington Workforce Training and Education Coordinating Board, for instance. And then in metropolitan areas, uh, we know that we have access to councils of government, COGS as we call them, to collaborate, and um, other entities um, such as the U.S. Conference of Mayors or um, the uh, ICMA. Uh, these are very important opportunities for us to work together. Now, Sherry, what prompted your interest in this area? You know, I think that the future of work is something that is, whether we realize it or not, on the minds of many of us. For some of us, it's in, you know, somewhere back there in the recesses. For me, it arose immediately when I saw the, the transitions. What will this mean? And in local government, um, I saw it immediately, whether it was a public health authority now having to do everything from organize an emergency operations center to figure out how to get PPE, to figure out how to have a website that doesn't crash for people to get appointments uh, for testing and then for vaccines. So whether it was uh, that or to see rapidly pivoting to how do we have education online with our schools and school districts or with a city or county? How do we rapidly pivot to having our county commissioner meetings or our city council meetings online and all these services online and available to people? So the, the future of work immediately to me was something that was here and now, not even just the future. Work is changing, is changing for our eyes, it is changing for all of uh, those working in these various um, local government entities, and it is changing externally, too, for those who interact with the local governments. Well, Sherry, thanks for joining us today. But more importantly, thank you for your contribution to the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its impact. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Look forward to speaking with you in the future. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations with Sherry Greenberg, contributor to the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, seven essays on reframing government management and operations. You can download this and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.